you uh, recall, if you were here last week, we began our first look at our uh, next book of the Bible. We are uh, considering here the book of Esther in the Old Testament, and today we'll continue with chapter 2 of the book of Esther. Let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's Word. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for, the beautiful, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women in, into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, along with those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge over the, of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with, uh, with, her, with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what had been happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. 
Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday through the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthena and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king, in the presence of the king. So last week, if you recall, chapter one sets the scene of where our story is going to take place. And chapter two continues along that uh, setting the scene, but it goes a little further in introducing uh, the, the main heroes of the story and not only introducing them, but uh, showing how they were placed into position to be the heroes of the story. So it's positioning, not only introducing these heroes, but positioning them in just the right place where they would need to be uh, for the, the, the resolution uh, of the crisis and deliverance from the, the, the danger that comes later in the story. And um, sort of, you know, what comes to mind is if you've ever played chess and played with someone who's really good at chess, I'm not that person. I, you know, we got a chess board and I taught our son uh, a little bit of the basics, but can't teach him very much strategy. I remember uh, James Marvin was at our house who, if you didn't know, he's some kind of chess grandmaster champion, I think, uh, but he played both of us. We were teamed up, me, me and my son teamed up against James. He went easy on us, I know, but I noticed as we were playing, he played a little differently from me. I'm thinking only of the current move and how I can get the, the win the game in one, the, just the current move, which is you really can't do very easily. But James is thinking like 10 moves ahead. And really, all of his moves, what he was doing was positioning his pieces in just the right place so that when the time came, he could strike and beat us in chess. And, uh, and uh, that's sort of what Esther chapter 2 is like, where uh, the heroes of the story are being positioned in just the right place so that at just the right time, they can uh, be that, those heroes. Uh, you know, 10 moves down the road. They can be positioned in just the right place to be used by God to bring about his good work of deliverance of his people. And here in the story, then, we see the entrance of these two heroes, Esther and Mordecai, who are coincidentally and remarkably placed into just the right places at just the right times through, uh, you know, really amazing circumstances, positioned in just the right way to be the heroes of the story, um, but of course, as the author knows, as the reader, 
understands this is not merely remarkable coincidence. But we, these are not just merely uh, externally uh, lucky people, if you can call it that, as we'll see. But, uh, but we know that there's an unmentioned, as we saw last week, the un- unmentioned and unseen and mysterious hand of God at work through it all, guiding these events along his intended course, guiding things along and giving favor to his people so that he can bring about his good work through them. One writer put it, puts it this way, that coincidences are miracles where God remains anonymous, right? And that's really what these chapters are about, is that God, that's really what the book of Esther is about, is God doing his miraculous work of providence, the ordinary way he works throughout history, to guide things along his plan. Not just those things which are easily seen in the miraculous works of God, but his hand mysteriously seen in the ordinary events of life, but also as we see in Esther chapter 2, his hand seen in the difficult and dark and confusing circumstances of life. And that's what I want to... um, to draw our attention to in Esther chapter 2, which reminds us that God's providence is sometimes very difficult to understand because God works out his purposes in an evil world and leaves us trying to understand that and at times very perplexed by it. And so Esther chapter 2, we need to sort of um, cleanse our minds of uh, what I, I think is maybe a, a mis, uh, misperception of what's happening in Esther chapter 2, uh, where we view it as some kind of Cinderella story where peasant girl meets Prince Charming, where it's dripping with love and romance, uh, where it's sort of a county fair queen pageant. It's not any of those things. It's not any of those things. But it's a reminder of the evils of this world and the evils that can happen in this world and be done to people in this world and even the exploitation that can happen in service to the desires and pleasures of those who hold power over others. And maybe you'll criticize me for saying that's sort of modern categories, but that's what it is. And Xerxes, you know, then wasn't unique in the ancient world for how he lived as a king in the ancient world. But he was known for, had a reputation of uh, living a life of sensual overindulgence, uh, particularly after his uh, defeat in uh, his, his failed invasion into Greece, which may be uh, when, when all this is occurring based on the timeline we see. But it isn't just an ancient problem, is it? Where exploitation of others for the fleeting pleasures of some still exists all around us today. Uh, You know, (laughs) one area that comes to mind in maybe in a more uh, universally accessible form that isn't limited to only kings who have lots of power, but available to anybody who has a computer or a cell phone. 
And so let's just step into the picture of what is painted here. We already saw in Esther chapter 1 that was setting the scene and really holding up the Persian world in order to, to mock it, I think. But we already saw the over-the-top luxury and wealth that is displayed for the purpose of self-exaltation and self-promotion. And then continuing into chapter 2, we see a picture painted of over-the-top self-indulgence of the Persian king at the expense of others. And from a worldly perspective, you know, the, the <laughs> some might think about some of these things and uh, we might think about some of these things and be tempted to envy. And, and the, the world wants us to envy these things. But the warning here is don't envy it. It's painting a picture of the world uh, that is everything this world tells you you need if you want to be happy and fulfilled in life, but it paints it in a satirical way in order to warn you of the dangers of it and to invite you to see through the false promises of it. The Persian king is sort of holding up his life, his world, and say, you know, this is what you need too. And why does the biblical author spend so much time relating it? It's to help us see through it, to see through the lie and to remind us that it may look attractive, but it is not what is good for us. It is not what we need. And just think about that for a second. When we, in our world today, are tempted to see, you know, and look at the lifestyles of the rich and famous that are flaunted before us and held up as the highest good that we ought to envy and pursue for ourselves, when we think about seemingly uh, endless physical pleasures that are out there and sold to us as the key to personal fulfillment, we need to see through those things, those empty and deceitful promises, and not envy them. And I, I can't remember what it was. I remember years ago when I was young, there was this television show that sort of became uh, tragically comical in that it, it highlighted the lives of rich and, and uh, famous people uh, but inevitably, behind the scenes of all the glitz and glamour and luxury and wealth and pleasure that we're told to envy and pursue, it's just behind the scenes of that, it's a tragic mirage where there is uh, misery and emptiness and pain. And we need to see through that. And, you know, uh, we all, right, we all sometimes struggle to doubt God's truth right? And we need to work to believe the truth uh, of God. But we, we don't always as easily doubt the lies that are thrown at us. And we need to remind ourselves to doubt those lies, to doubt those false promises that seem to uh, be so believable sometimes. Doubt them as much as or more than certainly, hopefully, we doubt God's truth, because the truth is that the more we would buy into those lies and live by them, the more we would be devastated by them in the end. And so we see the continued mockery of the Persian king. First, we see his foolishness. Right in verse 1, we see this hint of regret that after his fury had subsided and um, presumably after he was, uh, you know, sobered up from his 
banqueting, uh, we see this hint of regret that he remembers Vashti. And the, the language there hints that maybe he is thinking of her in regret. But too bad, you know, he didn't wait until his anger had subsided to make that decree in the first place, right? Uh, and possibly, you know, he regrets what he, he thinks of her with some regret, but he finds himself sort of a prisoner of his own impulsive and foolish decree, which he can't change now. And the, the reader's then prepared for the possibility this might happen again down the road, which it does in the story where the king is trapped by his own thoughtless, foolish, impulsive decree. And uh, furthermore, the language there in verse 1 literally reads uh, what had been decreed about her. What had been decreed about her. And it makes you wonder if even now with his regret, he's still not really taking responsibility for his actions that caused this Thing that he regrets and so whatever it is whether he feels regret or guilt what, whatever it is he's quickly his mind's quickly drawn away from that as his young men advisors around him pitch a plan to him that uh, sounds really good to him right uh, sounds attractive and agreeable yet it is foolish advice Uh, more folly we see here that they're told why don't you pick a queen based on two criteria First, in verses 2 through 4, their outward physical beauty, and second, their ability to please him sexually. That is the, dec- that's the criteria they propose. And that's what then goes on to happen. They, they um, bring in all these young virgins from around the empire. Uh, They're chosen for their beauty, and then in verse 12, they're given a, you know, what is it, just over the top in extravagance and expense, 12-month-long beauty treatment for the sake of the king. And that's the first criteria. And then the second criteria is addressed in less detail, but very clear enough in verses 13 through 14. So they would each take a turn, go to the king in the evening, and then return to a different part of the harem in the morning. And those are the two criteria by which the king thinks is our good criteria to choose a queen. And you, you know, you'd think a king would know better than to make these things the criteria for his choice of a queen over a vast and powerful empire, right? They could probably think of better criteria, less self-serving criteria. It's just foolishness. Uh, and it's certainly far different from the values of God's kingdom, who looks at the heart, not just that, not the outward appearance. But in verse fourteen, or verse four, excuse me, we see, well, this advice appealed to the king. Uh, he's just foolishly swept up in it and blinded to the folly of the advice because he is just driven to catering his self-indulgent lusts. And when we look at what's happening here in chapter 2, the question, I think, that it, we're left with, and, you know, maybe that we can, we're left with when we look at the lot of human history, so how much expense, but more so, how much suffering needs to happen for the sake of the king's selfish, lustful pleasures? 
How much suffering? And, uh, you know, we see this advice being carried out in verses 8 through 14, where these uh, beautiful young virgins of the kingdom are taken. They're probably not filling out application forms for this. Uh, They're taken from their lives, their families, the prospect of marriage and children, not to mention other young men being deprived of potential spouses for the sake of the king, uh, in order to be used by the king for one night and then discarded. Uh, The king, you know, they they would be after their uh, night, unless the king called them back, they would be resigned to a luxurious life maybe, but a life that might be characterized by isolation and seclusion in the king's harem, where they may never see the king again. They could not return to get married or to their family, but their lives simply taken for the sake of the king's uh, temporary pleasure and use of them. And the suffering that we are uh, drawn, uh, drawn see, see here in this chapter wasn't just limited to women. Uh, you know, we see the presence of eunuchs in the administration of the harem and, and the palace. And um, a, a Greek historian reported that each year 500 young men were taken into um, be made eunuchs in service of the king. And whether that's totally accurate or not, it paints a pretty grim picture. Uh, and one, one writer sums this up in this way, that this is all just a brutal act typical of how power was used in the Persian court. Everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims and pleasures. As I mentioned, it's not just an ancient problem, is it? Where people are exploited for the pleasures of others. And uh, Xerxes here, you know, seems to have, um, is, is, is uh, painted as utterly foolish, as utterly self-indulgent, and it sets the scene not only to help us, to, to warn us to see through this kind, of, this kind of value system and to not live as though uh, material possessions or luxury or wealth or physical pleasure is everything and the thing we need to satisfy our souls and find happiness and fulfillment in life. But also, it's, as we remember, <laughs> being near to this king is dangerous. And this is the scene that Esther steps into. And so into the scene then enters Esther and Mordecai, both of whom are positioned into places where they can bring about God's deliverance from the crisis that arises later in the story. Esther remarkably becomes queen, and the repeated phrase we see there is she found favor. Everywhere she goes, she's finding favor, and I think the, that what we should uh, see in that is God's hand uh, placing her into that position uh, where she needed to be in order to be able to be used by God to bring about the salvation of many. And likewise, we see Mordecai at the end of the chapter who's in just the right place at just the right time to, uh, with now access to the queen uh, so that he can hear of the assassination plot and tell Esther so that she can warn the king and he saves the kid's, king's life. And we read that it's recorded in, in the history books there, but 
uh, we, he's not immediately rewarded for this. And that becomes important later in the story. Persian kings, in fact, were known for their liberality and generosity towards those who helped them and, uh, you know, who did favors for them. And this, this was a favor, right? I mean, he saved the king's life. But Xerxes, for whatever reason, there's this oversight. And uh, crucial to the story later on, Xerxes is left owing him one. He, he owes Mordecai one. And so he, like Esther, just happened to be in the right place at the right time uh, to put uh, these, they're put into place for the crucial deliverance that happens later. And of course, we see the hand of God in it. And here they're, they're in this chapter, though, they're in, introduced. And Mordecai is introduced as Mordecai the Jew. Uh, Mordecai is a pagan name, the name of a Babylonian god. Most likely, he had a Hebrew name also, just as we see Esther. Uh, her, her, she had a pagan name, Esther. That was uh, possibly the name of a pagan goddess. Um, but she also had a Hebrew name, Hadassah. And so we have Mordecai the Jew. Uh, of Mordecai, we're also told of his lineage, which w- we see the significance arise later. Uh, we're reminded by that, though, that he was, his ancestors were carried into exile and taken captive. And so in both of them, you see this bit of uh, dual identity. Uh, Mordecai, on the one hand, he lives in Susa, has a pagan name, and is an exile. But on the other hand, he is Jewish. And Esther, on the one hand, has a Jewish name and has a, a pagan name. They are sort of uh, portrayed then as living with two identities, living between two worlds, uh, as God's people in a foreign pagan land and trying to navigate through all the complexities of that. And, uh, you know, later on, we start to, we see that um, there is some hostility that exists towards God's people in that situation. And uh Maybe some of us have experienced the reality of that. Trying to live in two different worlds where it becomes tempting to live with two different identities and straddle across both worlds uh, because of the hostility and pressures that we face. But God's call to us is to live with both feet in his kingdom as his people in this world, not of this world world, um, but that causes us to face very difficult circumstances because this world is not always friendly to God's people, but rather hostile. And, and we see this uh, hinted at in verse 10 where Esther is told by Mordecai, and that comes up again um, <clears throat> in verse 20. She's told to keep her Jewishness hidden. Um, Mordecai instructed her to do so, and she's uh, obedient to him in that. We're not told why. And we're not, actually, we're not really told if the narrator approves or disapproves of this. Uh, Later on, as I mentioned, we get the impression that this might be because Mordecai is aware of hostility that exists. Um, But we're left to wonder, really, is that cowardice and compromise on this part? which led Esther then to violate God's laws, the dietary laws that she would have then had to violate? 
Uh, Or was it sort of necessary shrewdness on their part, where maybe a modern-day example is Christians who live in hostile countries who uh, worship in underground churches or don't necessarily uh, flaunt their, their faith because of persecution. It's really one of the, you know, it, we're, we're left wondering. Uh, the, the narrator doesn't really uh, tell us. That's actually one of the difficult parts of the book of Esther is that we see the characters and the heroes in what seem to be very compromising positions, but the narrator is uh, often silent on the, the, the reasons for the decisions they make. He's silent on the motives in the decisions they make, and he gives no evaluation, morally speaking, of the decisions they make. And so Esther and Mordecai at times are sort of clothed in this kind of moral ambiguity. And we're left wondering... Why Esther, unlike Daniel and his friends, for example, hid her Jewish identity and so violated God's law by eating the unclean foods in the harem? Or why Esther, unlike Joseph, uh, didn't flee from sexual immorality, even at great personal cost to himself? Or why Esther uh, married a Gentile? What would Ezra and Nehemiah have said we just, as we just uh, considered their passionate response to that problem present in the lives of God's people? Uh, we're sort of left not really knowing what to conclude about some of these things. And maybe part of the answer is, I, I tend to uh, lean this way probably, is that this was probably not a very optional thing for Esther. Uh, for any of the women there. Um, but still, some of the women may have been sort of swept up by the, the life of luxury or the possibility of becoming royalty. And in the end, we're not told by the narrator uh, anything about Esther's uh, thoughts or feelings or uh, about her situation or motives or decision-making in her situation. We don't know if she loved her situation or loathed it. We don't know if she was uh, complicit and compromising or simply resigned to a seemingly impossible situation with no other way out. Uh, if she was uh, completely a, a, a helpless victim or some kind of willing agent. If she looked back on it with a clear conscience or with shame and regret. Uh, the passage doesn't tell us. And even in verse 15, there's this curious detail. She doesn't choose for herself what to take into the king's presence with her, but she just uh, asks Hegai, the eunuch, to uh, recommend something um, and um, uh, suggest something. And we don't know, is this her sort of shrewd calculating to get to the top because she knows Hegai has an inside scoop on what the king wants? Or is this her sort of silent protest to refusing to take an active role in participation in all of it? We really just don't know. And Esther then is clothed in moral ambiguity by the author who neither exonerates her nor criticizes her. And this has been, as I discovered this week, this has been a real problem for those who try to interpret uh, the book of Esther since the earliest days. Uh, But it may be that that's all part of the point. Uh, Maybe she was helpless and innocent victim. 
Maybe uh, she did not respond to a complex situation perfectly. Maybe she really sinned and failed. But maybe part of the point is we don't know, but we do know that God still used her in a significant and powerful way. And one writer sums it up that, that, you know, even the greatest heroes in the Bible, accepting Jesus, (laughs) flawed, they were flawed and they failed in many ways. And that's a reminder, I think, and an encouragement to us. You know, maybe we have really failed. Maybe we've faced gut-wrenching decisions in which we didn't really know the way forward. And while there, I believe there is always a right way forward for us, we don't always get it right, do we? We sin. Or we are sinned against and feel ashamed because of it. But aren't you glad that our God is a gracious God? And the God who used Esther in a powerful way can use us for his purposes too. And that our failures or whatever else don't put us outside of the realm of those who God uses or the ability of God to use because God only uses faulty people. That's all he's got to work with. Aren't you glad that God is a gracious God who forgives us, cleanses us, still loves us, and still takes us to be his own people and still uses us for his glory? And his purposes. But secondly, what I think is really the more uh, the the more focused purpose of uh, the the passage here is that God uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong, and that I think rather than the that I think is really the focus here because we skipped over part of how Esther is introduced to us. Esther is introduced uh, in three, three, three things about her. She's an orphan, she is Jewish, and she's a woman. And in that, in that context, that's like if you want to describe three things that, are, that, that uh, communicate weakness and lack of power in that time and place in that context, you couldn't pick a better three things than that. Orphan, Jewish, woman. And that's three strikes against her if you're viewing her through the lens of power and importance and value and significance according to the world, right? But Esther ends up foiling the decrees of the king Xerxes and uh, foiling the schemes of uh, powerful and wicked Haman. And who is she? She's a a Jewish orphan girl. And it's a, a picture of how God works, that God doesn't choose the strong and powerful things according to the world, but he chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And, you know, on the chess board, back to our chess analogy, I don't know, I'll probably say something incorrect about chess, but she's like a pawn, right? Uh, she's less than a, a pawn in, in, in the scheme of things. She's easily overlooked, easily forgotten, easily written off. You know, one more pretty face in the sea of pretty faces with the deck stacked against her. And in chess, pawns are the smallest 
uh, size of piece and the smallest value of piece. They're kind of like a throwaway piece that you can sacrifice for little gain without much cost. Uh, But in chess, you know what also? In chess, a pawn can become a queen. And when I play chess, that usually happens when you forgot about the pawn's existence altogether because it's so weak and powerless and unthreatening. You just sort of forget about it, write it off, don't worry about it. But in pawn, a chess can become the, mo- one of the most powerful piece on the board. God gives Esther favor. She becomes queen, putting her in seemingly the only place where God could then use her to bring about his salvation of the Jewish people. God uses the weak things of this world to shame the the strong. And it's when we are weak, when we in humility acknowledge our weakness and trust in God in dependence upon him, it's then we can use by him, by his strength, by his power, for his purposes. That's how God builds his kingdom. Not by the Xerxes of the world, but by the Esters of the world. And that's how he brought about our salvation, right? Through Jesus who has all power and all authority, power and authority to make Xerxes laughable in comparison. Jesus, born as a weak, helpless baby, living as a man, dying in the weakness and shame of the cross and the seeming defeat of the grave, it all looks like weakness according to the world. But rising again in victory, to bring about the greatest, most powerful, most miraculous deliverance in all of human history, our salvation from sin and death. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Let's pray. Our God, we give you praise that you're a God who's always present and always at work, though at times that leaves many questions in our minds and at times presents us with many challenges and much confusion but God we give you thanks that you are a gracious God who uses imperfect people you are a gracious God who uses weak people and we give you praise for Jesus our Savior who came and died in weakness but was raised to life in power and victory for our salvation all these things we pray in Jesus name amen